Hello and welcome. You are listening to The Investor Lab. My name is Goose. My name is Charlie. And today, we God, we covered a lot of ground, Charlie. Can you even remember the, some of the stuff we talked about? We've had a very heated discussion around the pros and cons and the and the the ethical um, the ethical application of things like lenders, mortgage insurance, and w- whether people are uh, have have the have the right. Um, what's, what, how would you describe that? I would say you want to make it to the end of this episode. The last <laughs> topics on this episode are definitely the most heated in discussion around LMI and I suppose setting some parameters and rules for what's responsible, what's risky and what's plain out idiotic. But we also definitely do cover things like what's been happening in New Zealand and how that's going to affect Australia or if it could affect Australia. We spoke about interest rates, Goose. And we also spoke about stock levels. And I kept a list because we went so far deep and wide. And what was your favourite topic? Um, I've got to say the the discussion at the end around around the 90, 90% lending and stuff and the ethics around that, I thought that was very good. Um, largely, be, largely because um, I never get challenged really on this on this show. I never have someone really try and uh, I, I guess really challenge challenge a perspective in a lot of ways. So I think that was really good to push that around. Um, I think it's fascinating to to think about. Uh, property strategy in relation to potential interest rate increases uh, as they go up. So I think there was a lot of good ground covered here. So. Yeah, it was good fun. You're a good sport. You could have <laughs> definitely taken a more hostile hostility towards me, but I appreciate the banter and straight line answers, Goose. So oh, if you haven't already, subscribe to the show and make it to the end <laughs> of this one particularly. <laughs> totally. I, I have a I have a I have a global viewpoint that the more that we can uh, pick apart ideas. Uh, the better off we're all going to be. So I, I I reveled in the opportunity to push that around with you. So thanks. <laughs> all right, My guys, pleasure. as Charlie said, if you haven't already subscribed to the podcast, make sure you check it out and share it with a family, a friend, a loved one, somebody else who's going to benefit from this. Share it with somebody who's thinking about leveraging at 90% LVR and see what see what Charlie thinks about that. And, and then, of course, um, send us an email. Let us know what you think about this show and other shows. And if you have... Any suggestions of topics you would like to hear us cover, either me, me and Charlie, me and Gabby, or me and a guest, then make sure you send them in. Just send it to hello at dash.com.au uh, or make sure you head to theinvestorlab.com.au where you can download free resources, tools, guides, get in contact and do all the good stuff. But without any further ado, let's get stuck right into it. And I look forward to seeing you on the inside. Hey guys, welcome back to the Investor Lab. Joining me today is my good friend and regular guest, Charlie Vela from Vela Media. How are you? Awesome. Thank you for having me, Goose. It's exciting times in property and business. It certainly is. It certainly is. So what's what has been happening on the property and business front for you? Well, I'll, I'll go through. I've got some like positives and negatives and things. Mm. Right now, it seems the coronavirus is raining plague on areas where I do a lot of business overseas. So it's fascinating to me that I've almost forgotten about it within Australia. Like we don't have to wear masks yeah. anymore in Victoria. And there is there is really a, a sense of mentality. I think, of course, there's still some very real risks and fears and vaccine rollouts and all that stuff. But I'm kind of of the mentality, everything's going to be okay. However, overseas in places like the Philippines, it seems it's like really escalating at the moment. I'm, I'm a bit worried. I'm a little bit worried. I think we take for granted in Australia how good it really is compared to some areas of the world. Yeah, 100%. 100%. It's really interesting um, seeing how obviously the health uh, thing is massive and, and um, but interest, it's interesting, I think, from an economic perspective as well 
So I was reading an article about Bali. It, Bali has like they they are frantically trying to get open to international tourism because they are such an economic center for the rest of Indonesia. So that so Indonesia has been pushing all of its um, not all, but like a, a, a significant amount of its attention to what do we need to do to get Bali back open? So vaccines have been uh, prioritized to be there. And, you know, they're really pushing. They've got about, I think, a 70, they're aiming for a 70% vaccination rate. Uh, and they've got herd immunity and all this kind of stuff. And they're really kind of pushing that to try and get that back open. Whereas other areas as well are still really struggling with it. And then that's keeping borders closed for longer. And they're, they're, you know, it's having huge economic impact. So what we're actually seeing is this real big shift between different markets, which is not dissimilar to, to you know, what we, a lot of things that we're seeing in property in Australia as well. Um, but it's even fascinating looking at looking at New Zealand, right? So everyone's and, uh, uh, talking, like thinking from a, like a macro, macro financial uh, perspective where, you know, there's all this money getting pumped into the system in Australia to, to offset any of the downside risk in Australia to make sure that our economy still thrives. There's a lot of people saying, well, you know, you can't keep printing money, you can't keep printing money and, you know, the recovery's being good. Look, you know, we've had a V-shaped recovery. No one expected that. You know, it's time to turn off the QE tap. But all you need to do is look at New Zealand and they're actually having a double dip recession to know that it's still, we're not out of the woods yet. So all of these kind of situations like in the Philippines like where, where you're mentioning where cases are starting to go back up, it's easy for us to, to think sometimes, oh, things are getting a little better. We're out of the woods great when in actuality we've probably still got a long way to go uh, on on multiple multiple fronts it's so interesting i think this will be the most interesting thing that's happened in my lifetime quite easily this i'd say endeavor. so yeah but you bring up a good topic and i'll, I'll start here and we'll, we'll dig into new zealand i am an avid youtuber i love youtube it's actually my kryptonite because i feel like i can just research anything and someone's likely made a reasonably good video on it mm. and um I could not believe the thriving industry in New Zealand of doomsday bunkers. I could not believe it. Where very high net worth individuals yeah. all across the world are buying up properties in New Zealand and putting oh, in yeah. doomsday bunkers. And um, I was so, so fascinated by this. But yesterday or the day before, some really interesting uh, news came out of New Zealand that they're now basically trying to put the brakes on property because prices are running away and they're deeply concerned about first home buyers being able to buy, the people who live there being able to afford properties and just what's going on in their general economy. Now, Goose, I know you follow this way more closely than me. What I would love uh, first is can you explain in, I'll say in layman terms, what's going on in New Zealand with interest rates and property at the moment yep. and then dig in a little deeper about what you think's about to unfold. Yeah, cool. I mean, I'm not going to pretend to be a, a, an expert on on the New Zealand financial situation, but it's interesting. Just back to the doomsday, uh, the doomsday bunker thing. That's been happening for years. That has been happening for a very, very, very long time. And it was very interesting that at the start of the coronavirus pandemic, uh, Queenstown, Queenstown. That's the yeah. So that, that that airport was just full of private jets because all of the all of the ultra high net worths who had already previously planned this is like i was reading about this kind of stuff i don't know five six seven years ago that that people that international investors were starting to buy up these big tracts of land to create these like big isolated you know if the world was to end and then everyone flew there started the pandemic like it, it was full of the airport was full of private jets of people that have flown in so it's, so it's fascinating and that actually influenced um some of the uh foreign investor taxes that 
that New Zealand put into place to actually try and manage that because they found that, you know, if, because of their isolation, the climate, the relative economic stability, political stability and stuff like that, it became a, a haven for people that wanted a, a bolt hole, a safe bolt hole. And so they actually had to put a lot of um, taxes in place to, to try and manage all of the foreign investors that were coming in. And, and they created two basically tax bubbles between Australia and Singapore. So if you're from Australia or Singapore, then then the foreign, foreign, foreign investor tax didn't apply or had some kind of discounts or something like that. But yeah, it's, um, it's definitely been a thing that's been happening for for some time so so how much have properties in new zealand gone up then to trigger all these recent events what's the okay. growth been like well okay so fast forwarding to now uh i think over the last 12 months property prices have gone up by about 25 percent um you know there's there's always different ways to look at it. i think auckland has gone up by 20 actually i think auckland's gone up by about 25 percent in the last 12 months and I think the rest of the country has gone up by about 19%. Um, but that hasn't all happened equally over a 12-month period. That's actually happened over sort of the last three, four, five months. So it's even the acceleration rate is even more extreme uh, when you think about it over a shorter time scale. You say 20, you say, you know, let's say 20% over 12 months, you're like, oh my God, that is huge. Um and that's on a national level, not an individual property level. And that's the that's the fascinating thing because we've bought properties for clients before and they've gone up by, you know, 20, 30, 40% in 12 months, but they're individual properties that have different individual characteristics within an individual space. When you're talking about taking a macro view on a market and saying that that's happening, that's wild. To give you some context over that, actually, which is really fascinating, um, the Sydney market peaked in 2017. And between 2017 and now, at the time of recording, or let me clarify, I read this statistic like last week, so it might be vaguely, slightly out of date, but not really. Um, the 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 change in median house prices across Sydney on a macro level, so greater Sydney, so you never look at a whole market because every suburb moves individually, but but looking at that on a, on that basis, Sydney has only gone up in value by 1.15% over four years, from 2017 to 2021, has actually only gone up in value by 1.15%. Melbourne has gone up by basically 0%. basically hasn't moved. Now, obviously, that's not exactly accurate on a per-suburb basis. But if you take that viewpoint and you say, okay, well, over the last four years on a macro level, Melbourne hasn't gone up in value at all. Sydney's only gone up by 1.15%, and that's not adjusted for inflation either. Uh, and then you say, well, okay, New Zealand on a macro level, which again, suburbs move differently and all of that kind of stuff, but on a macro level, it's gone up by 20%. You're, you're talking about some pretty wild uh, volatility in the marketplace. Uh, and as a result... You know, there's a lot of restrictions that are going into place because basically it's starting to starting to get out of control. Now, we're, we're property investors, right? So, you know, that's exciting when you see that kind of growth. But also what's happening is it's accelerating way faster than wage growth. It's accelerating way faster than the rest of the economy can keep up. And I kind of touched on the fact that um, they're in this really tough position right now because the, the economy is actually not growing. <laughs> House prices are growing. And so they're 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 importing they're they're implementing, you know, financial policies in order to try and stimulate the economy. But the economy is not being stimulated because they've got such a tourism heavy economy. And at the same time, you know, investors and stuff are taking taking you know this economic opportunity and pumping it into the property market, and that's pushing the market up. The very interesting thing, though, is there's a big difference between the the what's driving that market growth in New Zealand versus Australia, because a lot of the concern at the moment is, okay, so if property prices go up by twenty percent 
in New Zealand, is the same thing going to happen here in Australia? And why is that causing a problem in New Zealand? And is it going to cause a problem here in Australia? And then also, what are the restrictions that are going into place in New Zealand and why? And is that going to happen in Australia? These are the kind of comparisons that we need to make. Now, I know for a fact that uh, investor investors for investor loans, I think the LVR, the maximum LVR, well, I say a fact, I, I'm pretty sure the maximum LVR uh, that you can get as an investor now is about 50% LVR. So they're putting all these um, LVR barriers in place to make it harder and harder and harder for you to actually raise the capital to buy a property, um, which is interesting. And they're also starting to scrap negative gearing, it looks like as well. Which four, is um, four years. You've got four years, and then there's no more negative gearing in New yeah. Zealand. This yeah, is the one is- that can I'm looking at. It's funny you've brought this up because I, I can completely see there's different drivers on growth, international yeah. investment versus in Australia. There's a lot of owner occupier. Mm. The part that I'm really concerned, or not concerned, but interested by, is it seems they're trying to change their market instead of like grandfathering it in. They're actually going four year window, remove negative gearing. And yeah. I'm like, will Australia follow suit or watch this unfold and make their own calls? Yeah, it's a good, it's a good question. At the moment, uh, New Zealand's in a position where basically they started a fire in the living room because everyone was cold and now everything else has caught fire. And so they're taking some pretty emergency measures to, to try and put it under control. So that's why there's no grandfathering. It's not this kind of like, uh, macro long-term strategy about how do we, you know, it's not a 10-year plan. They're going, holy shit, this is out of control. What can we do now, <laughs> right? How do we put the brakes on? And so this kind of emergency brake mentality is is what's, what's happening, right? And that's why, they're, that's why they're doing that. Interest rates are going up. Uh, they're scrapping negative gearing in four years. They've extended the bright line test uh, to 10 years, which is basically, a, you know, they say there's no capital gains in, uh, capital gains tax in, in New Zealand, but there is. Um, it's just called the Brightline test. Uh, you know, all of these other kind of factors, and they're also pumping in three point eight billion dollars to try and stimulate housing supply. Because the problem with New Zealand isn't that it suddenly become necessarily any better to to buy there. It's they have a a, a horrendous undersupply of of available properties for the for the amount of people that want to buy them. And they've also based on their existing or historical uh, fiscal policy and, and lending policies, they've had a much more favorable lending environment. And it's always been different to Australia. So for example, in New Zealand, let's just take a go back maybe one or two years so that we can d- disconnect it from what's happening right now. You know, the ability to um, buy a property that was self-service on its own merit still existed in New Zealand where it didn't exist in Australia. So there's all these other kind of factors. So I don't think it's, we're not comparing apples with apples because we have actually have a different market. We actually have different financial policies, even though we have similar banking and, you know, we talk similar and, you know, all of that kind of stuff. There is a big difference, which is why yields have, uh, been more of a dominant feature in the New Zealand landscape than in the Australian landscape uh, for, a, for a long period of time. But the problem is now, uh, because those policies exist where properties uh, can self-service on their own yields a lot easier and stuff like that, uh, it's pushing all of these investors to get into the market and rates are really low and they're just going, how fast can we get into the market? So investors are driving that market over there, not not homeowners. And the problem with that, of course, is that it, they've got a gross undersupply of properties. The demand is increasing. The supply is not. That's creating some issues, even to the point where people are starting to buy properties in areas that have little to zero fundamentals in terms of long-term 
growth strategy, but they're buying them purely because they can still get you know a five percent, six percent yield, and that's the basis of the decision that they're making. So I think a lot of people are making a mistake over there as well. Yeah, a lot of FOMO, right? If it's moving that fast, you almost have to buy because if it moves any quicker, there's no way you can catch up in savings rate. But totally. I want to shift this because it's. Uh, I want to bring this back home because you've brought up something with stock levels here, which has become a very dominant part of the conversation in Australia. So I look at this at the moment and constantly, I, I mean, we had a conversation before this call where you had mentioned another buyer's agent who's got, he just can't buy houses. He's trying so hard to find stock levels and stock levels, to my understanding, are at their lowest they've practically ever been comparable to the amount of buyers. Now, why I think this is particularly interesting is in Q1, Australia recorded its like first ever on record population decline. This is like the first yeah. time it's happened where we're actually got, I think it was only minuscule, like we're 4,000 less people in the country than um, we're at the start of the quarter, which, I mean, obviously is not a good thing. We don't want to hear that. It's not a nice thing to think about. But what I'm trying to wrap my head around is if the population's declining, how are stock levels staying so low when you take into consideration, like surely in Q1 we built some houses and finished some projects? Why are stock levels staying so low? How to think about these stock levels? Surely, is this going to be something we catch up to as more projects become complete? Why isn't government putting a fire on everyone to a subdivision? And I know that's a gross exaggeration, but it seems to me odd that stock can remain low for so long. Um, we've had a gross undersupply of properties in Australia for pretty much forever. So I think um, I looked at it in 20... 20, 2018, 2019, I was looking at the numbers and I think it was we had a, a deficit of about 450,000 properties. Um, it's massive. Yeah. And the, and the thing is as well, like the building approval rates, I think we were only approving like an extra, I can't remember the numbers exactly, but the, but the, 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 diff the difference between population growth and the building approval rate was so vast that it was, a con it was an accelerating problem. Right, so we haven't, so we've, we have not had enough properties in Australia for the amount of people that we have, or for the demand that we have more specifically, for for, for a very, very, very long time. So it's not something that's new. So I, I was interesting. I was I was reading a um, I was reading uh, an article from the CEO of Stockland. Right, so Stockland is, I think, the country's biggest developer, certainly up there, and they've got a big building in the middle of the Sydney CBD with their name on it. So they're obviously pretty massive. Um, and they, they in this in this article that I was reading, by him, it was very interesting. It was kind of more like a a report to shareholder type type discussion. He was saying that there's a deficit on the eastern seaboard of Australia of 140,000 houses right now. But more specifically, because of the lack of available land release, because if they could, they would keep on building more houses because there's demand. They're a huge developer. The problem is uh, is not. Why aren't people building more houses? It's there's nowhere to build them, right? Because we start to run into zoning issues. So, you know, Stockland as a huge developer is going. We'll build anywhere that we can. Tell us where we can build. Let's get a bit. Let's let's go, um, because they actually have the 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 financial might to basically create economies, right? It's a fascinating thing with those guys because they can literally, if you just got them a piece of dirt somewhere, they could go and build enough other businesses. You know, build enough infrastructure there to create a self-supporting economy. So they're just looking for land. They're not even going. Where's the latest hotspot? Let's go there. They'll just go. Give us land. We'll go. And, we'll go and make a city. Basically, it's crazy uh, the way that 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 whole machine works. Um, but there's not enough land being released. So 
the demand is there. The demand is increasing because more people want to buy because uh, rates are lower. That's pretty. That's pretty obvious. And, and you know, housing affordability is actually in, in a in a really great great place compared to where it was a few years back. But there's just not enough houses. We can't build them fast enough, even though population is declining. So we'd need to see a decline in population in the hundreds of thousands before we were to to meet that demand. Or you know, simultaneously, we're going to be building houses, but you'd still be looking you'd still be looking at a deficit of of a couple hundred thousand. So I don't think that's going to be an issue anytime soon. Just crazy when you think that that's how big the deficit is. I'm so fascinated by that as a topic on um, what can be done and how people are thinking about it, but it doesn't look like it's going to change anytime well, soon. Well, it's you know it's really interesting, right? Because this is why that you know that there's uh, a push toward yeah in some sectors. You know, we, we've done uh, episodes in the past talking to people that build rooming houses and stuff like that. The whole rooming house micro apartment movement is really around trying to solve the uh the issue of population density and lack of supply right and fundamentally that is that is going to continue to be a part of the landscape because if there's only a certain amount of available land people do want to own their own own place and people are starting to make those kind of those kind of decisions and it's very interesting as well um that harry triggerboff who's you know one of australia's richest men and you know self-made property billionaire um he if, I was really fascinated to be reading his story a little while ago. And I, I bring this up because Gabby and I were talking about him recently because Adam Bant posted um, something on, on social media, um, which basically was, was um, decrying, you know, the, the billionaires and, and the fact that they're, they're so wealthy because there's some kind of snapshot of Harry Triggerboff saying he's got three pools and it's like, no one needs three pools and no one should be that wealthy. So we're having this discussion around wealth and um, ethics around wealth and all of this kind of stuff. And I was like, well, Harry's a very interesting story. When he moved over as an immigrant to Sydney, um, you know, popular, uh, dense, dense uh, accommodation, i.e. apartments, townhouses, things like that, they were, they were not a done thing. There might have been a couple. It's not like he invented apartments, but he came from Europe where living in apartments was quite normal. And he came to Australia where everyone was living in houses. And he was like, okay, I'm sure that, I'm sure that people are going to want to live in, in, in smaller, more densely, you know, densely structured uh, buildings and stuff like that. So he actually did his first like small development, bought a house, did a little development, built like I think it was a four pack of uh, four pack of, of units, a little four apartment block. And you know, I made a little bit of money, and that was his start. And he literally started from 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 the ground up and redefined the whole apartment market in Australia because he could see that that was where the demand was going then, right? So I find that whole story fascinating because he didn't come in wealthy, he didn't raise heaps of capital. He just went and said, right, oh, okay, I think people are going to want to live in smaller spaces. There's not that much room here, and started building that out. So I think that this is going to be a continuing trend. Um, but that's also then going to imply that governments are going to need to have a focus on, you know, overall lifestyle and well-being, and making sure there's good facilities for people and things like that. So, I think uh, holistically, you know, there's a there's a, a, a fascinating future for the landscape in Australia. Partly as well because we can't keep building, we can't keep releasing more land. The reason that there's a limitation on the amount of land that's being released is because, hey, we still need to grow food. We still need to have forests. We still need to have pristine beaches. We still need to have all the things that our lifestyle demands. Otherwise, we're just going to create some big megalopolis where you know it's basically just houses all the way from Sydney to Brisbane up the eastern seaboard. And so that level of constraint is is obviously one of the fundamentals that drives markets in any case. Absolutely. I just find it so fascinating. I think up is, again, where we're going in a lot of ways in a lot of towns. It has to be. 
Yeah, totally. So, you know, and it, and it's really it's a really interesting thing uh, to think about that. You know, why why do certain markets grow? And I don't want to go too tangential into this into this kind of into this vector, but it's all around psychographics, right? It's all around why what what is more desirable and where do people want to live and why? So, you know, on a on a macro timescale, property markets. You know, I don't want to sound like a like just to simplify too much, but property markets do go up. You've got the forces of inflation, you've got the forces forces of supply and demand. So if you take a hundred year time scale, it's an upward trending line. That doesn't mean that on a month to month or a year to year basis, there's not some ups and downs and and things like that. But in a general sense, yes, we are we are only going to go up. The question at the moment though is how fast is it going to go up? Where is it going to go up? What is going to be the impact of any fiscal policy moving forward to kind of control that to make sure it's sustainable? Because you can't grow by twenty percent a year every year, year on year on year on year, because that would, you know, it'd be a snake that eats itself; it'd implode, right? So, how do we manage that? How do we make sure it's sustainable? And how do we make sure that we don't have a complete housing market crash? Because particularly in Australia, so much of Australia's wealth is tied up in in real estate, huge amounts. Right, I'm going to shift gears again, though, because I want to make sure we cover some topics that I'm uh, very, very interested in, as well as this one. Recently, I noticed that all four of the big four banks have actually put their rates up. So mm-hmm. mortgage rates have gone up for the first time in a long time after just yep. huge, huge declines. Now, I don't know if this is a change in sentiment. I'm not sure if the banks are worried about their profitability, but it did bring up the thought and idea of what's going on with interest rates and where are they going? Now, I've been very fortunate that in the entire time I've been a homeowner or investor, interest rates are almost negligible. I don't even think about them. They're so low. Mm. But I do wonder, what's your view and opinion on where they're going? Oh, they'll go up for sure. Like, I I don't think it takes a rocket surgeon to to kind of look into the distance and go, okay, well, if this is so good to buy right now, which it is, and if property markets are going up, which they are, uh, what is going to happen in the future, and how is that? What what kind of uh, programs are the RBA likely to put in place to control this in the future? Does that mean that I do, I think rates will go up for sure, and I, I think that that's going to be a natural control measure to manage the market to manage to slow it down. That's not the issue at the moment in Australia. You know, it's the Australian housing market is being driven by uh, owner occupiers, not not investors. And at the end of the day, you know, it's good for Australians to have more of their own homes. So there's the the fundamental impetus from the RBA right now is not how do we stop the property market growing. It's like good people are buying houses, they're spending money, they're doing all this stuff. That's, that's all good. That being said, you know you can't pump, you know, you know, nearly, you know, it's, I I reckon it's going to end up being once we factor in all of the different rounds of QE that are still to come, plus all of the other funding that's been put in for the coronavirus, you can't pump a trillion dollars worth of worth of funding into an economy and not see see asset prices rise. We're already seeing that in the commodities markets with, you know, iron ore and all of that kind of stuff. So the question then, of course, is how are they going to slow it down? You know, if it starts to run away, which it will, uh, how are they going to try and slow it down? And when? When is this going to happen? So I do think rates are going to rise. I don't think they're going to stay low forever. Um, I don't think it's going to happen overnight, though. I don't think we're going to wake up next week and see see rates have jumped up to seventeen percent or whatever they were when when my parents were buying buying a house. I don't think that's going to happen. Do I think that they are going to rise significantly over the next uh, seven years? Yes, I do. And this is a this is a really fascinating thing to think about because um, the issue that we're seeing in New Zealand is an issue that we can see in Australia as well. With rates being so low, and you're going, oh, right, rates are, you know, 
three, we'll say 3%, right? Because that's for most investors, that's kind of roughly where they're going to sit, right? Oh, rates are at 3%. So that means that I can buy a property and if it yields at, um, let's just say, 3.5%, it'll kind of roughly wash its own face and, all right, that's probably going to be good. All right, cool. So people are making investment decisions based on what the interest rates are now. The problem with that is that it's not always going to be this way. So there's no future-proofing thinking in the strategy. Um, so I think there are either going to be other policy uh, decisions that get put into place as well, but I think rates is a big one because rates affects what you know affects our whole net cash flow position in our in our portfolios. It can be it can be huge, but I think um, I think more than ever, like I'm doubling down on the idea that yields will over the long term play a much 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 and do already play a much 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 bigger role in the success of any property portfolio. Than, than capital growth because if we know for if we know that property markets broadly speaking go up of course there's timing there's buying in the right markets all that kind of stuff I'm not just saying buy any property anywhere and they all go up you're really smart about it but if you're buying in in good locations and you're confident that you're going to get capital growth even if you know you don't get 10 15 percent capital growth but you are getting growth Yields are going to be the thing that will allow you to have continuity in your portfolio that allow you to hold the property portfolio and that are going to allow you to fund your lifestyle. So as rates go up, which they will, I think a lot of, you know, to quote Warren Buffett, you know, you don't know who's been swinging, swimming naked until the tide goes out. And I think that that will happen down the line. And I think the ones who are going to be the best off are going to be the ones who are taking action now to buy assets, which are going to be able to support and fund that portfolio, even despite economic shifts, which has been, always been a big thing around our whole philosophy around property. So going back to going back all the way back to the start for me and Gabby, we bought the wrong property, wrong place, wrong time. Now, why was it the wrong time? It was the wrong time because um, you know it was 2018, uh, Royal Commission got announced. There were some issues with, with uh, there was a whole bunch of political and economic stuff that went on and the, the market in Melbourne went down, dipped. And that was to do with government, um, policy changes and things like that. It wasn't to do with a pandemic or anything you know, anything to that effect. It was to do with policy changes. So you've got to think, okay, how is my portfolio going to survive and thrive even, even when, not if, the envir- environment around me changes? It's interesting. I have, I have two things I would love to go deeper on that with is, one, if you are an investor and we are making, let's go, we're hedging the risk. I'm not even saying we're trying to imagine. We're just hedging it on the idea that rates could go up. What's the approach to doing that? And I'll give one suggestion is like, do you start paying down some debt so interest becomes less of a variable? Mm. And then the other side of that that I, I really want to um, take into consideration is not just the hedging of it, but if rates do go up. So I look at this and I think about it. If rates go up, and let's pretend we're the RBA, they would put rates up because the economy's improved because things are yeah. good. And I'm like, okay, but if things are good, wouldn't people buy properties, invest? Like, isn't this like a counterintuitive thought? Like, rates going it, up isn't is. necessarily like a bad thing. In fact, it might be a really good thing. Yeah, it's really interesting when you when you think about it like that. I'm going to go into that point because let's play. And I've thought about this a lot, right? So let's play through that scenario. Okay, so the the RBA pumps, you know billions and billions of dollars of QE into the into the economy. Okay, that filters through to business. Business goes well and employs more people. As it employs more people, there are suddenly less unemployed people, which in, in, increases the you know, you know increases the scarcity of good employees, etc. Therefore, wages start to go up because go up because 
employees have more bargaining power because they're more in demand, etc. So wages start to go up. That uh, inherently slows business down a little bit because it reduces margins and stuff like that. But that's okay. That's all good. But then as people are earning more money, they're going, great, I'm going to go and spend more money. And So initially, they're going to spend it on consumer goods and then they spend it on um, asset, long-term asset uh, acquisition, so properties. So property prices start to go up. Now, if they start to go up too fast and people start to get too much FOMO, then that can create inequality and you know all of these other other issues. So they want to put the brakes on property prices so they don't accelerate too far beyond the you know and and create you know social issues and stuff like that. So they increase interest rates. So it decreases the affordability of buying a property. That's the goal. Decrease the affordability of buying a property. So then the question is like, well, hang on a second this is now really expensive to buy the house. Maybe I could just rent it. Maybe I could just have the... I'm earning more money and really what I want is the outcome. I want to live in a nice place or whatever the case may be. So then renter demand goes up and people can afford to pay more in rent. So therefore, that drives uh, an accelerated rental market. And it's this and it's this balance that plays out. So I think that... Um, I think that leaning into leaning into strategies where you're focusing on the opportunity to capture the best amount of rent is going to be uh, a dominant force as this plays out and starts to unfold. And when you start to think about second, third, and fourth order consequences, well, that's where I'm getting lost. I'm like, okay, and then you're okay. Rental demand goes up. Well, suddenly that expensive property, well, the rent's higher, so it actually pays for itself. Am I concerned in spending a little bit extra if I'm receiving more on rent? Well, probably not. So then I buy, and then it perpetuates. Yeah, but it's all about finding balance, right? So, so th- there's nothing wrong with that. You know, if if all forces were equal, and if rents were rising at the same rate as property prices and the same rate as wages, and if all that was then cool, the goal isn't how do we make properties not go up in value. It's how do we find balance and and equilibrium in, in the in the marketplace. Like how do we how do we make it fair and reasonable? How do we make sure that housing affordability is not accelerating away from from you know the current wages and stuff like that. So it's certainly not about stopping growth. It's about managing it, I think. Hugely so. Yeah. Uh, next topic, next one of Charlie's questions on this episode here. <laughs> I, uh, I recently got into an argument in a Facebook group, something that seems to be happening more commonly to me. Can I, can I just ask, was that a property-based Facebook group? Of course. God, I, I, you know, I'm, I am passionately off social media. It's so funny because I talk to people and they're like, "Oh my god, you're all over socials," and, and I'm like, "I don't even." I deleted Facebook Messenger because too many people messaged me on my birthday. I was like, "I'm getting all this, I'm getting all this notification." But property groups, property groups, I gotta say, are some of the most inhospitable places on the whole planet. There's so much, there's so much uh, volatility and virility in there. Oh, we'll, we'll say this right now. It's it's fun for me. <laughs> <laughs> I um I'm really really um fascinated by them all and their opinions and views. And I I look at this and go, the barrier to entry of creating a Facebook group is near zero, and then yeah. the ability to join one is near zero. So when you put no barrier to entry in something where there's so much misinformation, misdirection, uh, uninformed people, it's like the most fascinating thing I've I've ever seen. Uh, go down with people spouting truths that they believe are true, which are just opinions. And uh, I'll go through one and then I've got a question on one. Uh, Basically, the first one I had is I got into an argument about someone had referenced you should never, ever use a buyer's agent. And I was like, because they believe you could do it yourself and that there was courses and things. Yeah, well, 
Except Goose, for someone like me that runs a business, it's just like that's never going to happen. I, I don't want to. I want to use a buyer's agent. So I don't want to spend my time doing the things uh, you do. And I, in all honesty, when I see the effort you put into it, I'm like, it's never going to happen. I'll stick my lane because I'm just not inclined to spend my time there. So that was the first one that I thought was interesting about just how spouty people are towards these things. Mm. But the second one, and this is the one from yesterday that is more and more interesting to me, was someone uh, lit a fire in this group about talking about only using LMI strategies to acquire properties. And I was, uh, well, horrified, to be honest. And the reason I did thought that, and I would love to, for you to either smack me into line and say why that might be okay, and for me to expand my thoughts, or the LMI discussion to happen here because I think there's some real dangers around it. What specifically do you mean about the LMI discussion? Do you mean leveraging to 90% as a, as a growth strategy? Yeah, so let's go into it. There was someone in there that isn't, uh, wasn't on a particularly high income. I say median income. Yeah. And then their whole strategy in the way they've gotten to their first uh, couple of properties is that they've just basically used LMI. They've never actually saved a deposit. They've used different uh, second-tier lenders to get properties on like 90, 95% LMI loans yep. and then refinance them to a big four down the road if they can or could. Um, however, the thing that came to mind is like, I'm not sure you should be buying properties if that's your strategy because the risk, like there's no room. If that moves down, like you're straight into ne negative equity in a second tier lender and there's no refinance option. So if you, for whatever reason, can't make the payments, which I would say is a, a tough gig if you're in a median income. Not a lot of spare cash floating around. I'm like, to me, that screams high risk and danger. And I was quite concerned that this was being taught as common trend. And then the second part of that is uh, in people using that strategy, down the road, surely this has got to have consequences. Like if you're just LMIing your way through relying on growth, like it has to kick you in the ass at some point when you're trying to borrow. Okay, so... <laughs> It's not a long-term strategy, but it can be a really good short one. Elaborate. So, hey? Elaborate. It's, Tell me more. Okay. So overall, no, you do not want to have a portfolio as it matures to have a 90% loan to value ratio. Right? That would be it would be it would be counter counterproductive, right? It would it would it would cease to give you what you wanted out of the portfolio. I've done I've spent a long time doing a lot of models around all of this kind of stuff, going, okay, what is the long-term impact? What would happen if you built a portfolio just on continuously leveraging and leveraging and leveraging and leveraging and leveraging and leveraging and leveraging as fast and as hard as you could? At the end of the day, you end up with a high amount of assets, you end up with a low amount of net worth and very little to no cash flow at the end of the day. Um, over a, something like a 50-year time scale, it can work because, um, you know, but you have to give it a huge amount of time scale. But there's the other way to look at it as well when you're talking about ROI versus cash flow, right? And you've got managed risk. So the, you've got to think, let's say I bought a property at 90% loan to value ratio. What is the reasonable likelihood that that property would go down in value by more than 10%? I would say unlikely, but possible. Po yeah, totally po possible, right? Possible. But even if you bought at... Um, even if you bought at 80% LVR, it's possible that it could go down by more than 20%. Okay. But it just halved my risk. I, I, for me, and I realize this is bias. Yeah. If I, I'm in at 80%, I'm like, the property market in Australia in the areas I buy have probably never gone down more than 20%. So it hasn't happened. I mean, to my knowledge, of course, like this is a hack comment. Yeah. But I look at that and go, if I'm buying something with a 20% deposit 
and I've got good buffers in cash should I need more and it's likely cash flow positive, well, how much risk have I just removed? Yeah, like, so, but this is, but this is, but there's many ways to be thinking about this. So I'm not trying to say, yeah, yeah, just go balls to the wall and, and leverage up and off you go necessarily. But um, you've got to understand what, what, the, what that inherent risk is. Now, if you're buying a property which is cash flow positive, and if you are buying in a good location, but how do you define good location? There's risk in that. You may choose the wrong location, right? Now, the, the question is, how likely is it to go down by 10% or more? Now, I think that that risk is very low because there's not that many. There are there are plenty of places where there's been massive price declines, okay. But you've got to understand what the what the market forces are. I, I think it's about location selection as much as anything. For example, if I was buying, I don't know, if I was buying in a mining town, I would not want that to be. I would not want to be that leveraged. Um, but there are markets which are inherently more stable and things like that. So I think it's about understanding the risk as opposed to saying, no, it's a bad idea. Don't ever do 90%. I actually think it can play a really, really vital role in the earlier stages of building portfolio. Now, the reason for that is that the, the average savings rate for people is, is low, right? If you're on a median income, the savings rate is low and it can take you a really long time to get ahead. Right? That's just the facts, right? Cost of living, wages, etc. And so using leverage as an opportunity to accelerate your savings over a short time scale can be very important. Now, very simple maths that I use when I talk to people about this because sometimes I recommend people do use 90% um, and sometimes I don't. And the differentiating factor between between these ideas is what is what is the current amount of capital but also what is their ability to contribute to that capital. So, for example, if someone's monthly savings rate is $1,000 a month and they're only going to save $12,000 a year, then and they don't have a huge amount of capital already, then okay, we may be able to use the benefits of leverage to create a higher return on investment or return on capital to be able to to give them a better total return. So if they bought a $500,000 property, again, using very basic maths, and they only had a 10% deposit, they put in $50,000. Of course, I'm, I'm skipping stamp duty and all the rest of it. They put in $50,000, that $500,000 property goes up by 10%. They've made 50 grand, that's 100% return on capital, right? If they put in 100 grand, same thing happens, they get a 50% return on capital. It's pretty simple. Now, for someone who is uh, in a uh, median or low income, that opportunity to accelerate their capital can be vital. Now, that being said, I don't think, again, that it is healthy to continuously go, how hard can I continuously scrape out the equity? Like, I want to keep taking the scalpel to it because that's going to decrease cash flows significantly and that's going to result in overall less health. You're going to be scraping it down to the bone now, and that's not going to be good. So, what you want to do though is you want to use that opportunity to create a bit of a footprint and to get a bit of a, a growth base. Okay. Now, if you can do that and then allow your portfolio to mature a little bit, your LVRs will change, right? You know, as you do get the growth and all of that other kind of stuff. And if you've got positive cash flow and you're pumping that back into either into an offset or and or on PI, like there are clients of ours who have 90% principal and interest loans. And you might be like, oh my God, principal and interest at 90%, that's a lot of debt. You just got to manage that. You got to go, okay, well, if that is the case, what do I need to think about from a yield perspective? to make sure that we are still going to be cash flow positive, or even if I'm going to interest only, what do I need to reach from a yield perspective so that when it switches back in five years, if I don't refinance, which may be a possibility if, if you may not have the, have the ability to refinance, and is the property still going to be able to pay for all of its own debt and expenses, right? So these are the kind of risk management factors you need to think about with that kind of a, a model. Holistically though, no. 
holistically though, you, you know, a, a healthy portfolio is going to be, you know, 70 to 80% LBR, depending on whether you're in a growth phase or a, or a, or a rest phase and stuff like that. You've got a bloat and cut mentality to it. But I certainly don't think it's something to say, it's bad, don't do it. It's about saying, okay, what are the pros and cons? What are the risks? How do I manage those risks? Now, we interestingly, we've had clients that have got a significant amount of capital, for example, got an inheritance and they've got a significant amount of capital, low savings rates, want to want to build out their footprint a little faster, right? So we're actually we're actually going, okay, cool. Yeah, let's use that as a strategy. But you've got to assess the pros and cons. So what I what I always talk to people about, I, I have this conversation, feels like daily. You know, I I'm not pro or I'm not one way or another. I don't have a bias towards, all right, yeah, yeah, yeah. You should just leverage up, buy as many properties as you can, because that's not that's not the goal either. Um but I do think that there's a. I do think that we need to understand what the impacts of those things are. You know, what's going to create uh, more opportunity for us in what ways and why, and is this going to be the healthiest move and and why and all of that kind of stuff. You know, a, a recent a recent example for a, with a with a client um, was uh, literally I had this conversation yesterday with him and his broker. So he's he's got enough capital for a ten percent deposit, um, including costs and all of that kind of stuff. So he's going ninety percent, but we're doing it on principal and interest because that's he's got the it's well within his risk profile. He can manage that. He doesn't need the extra liquidity. It's going to pay down the debt. But then what we're going to do for the net and for this property, we're focusing on, on growth orientation and stuff like that and future development potential, a few other things specific to his personal situation. And then for the next one, we're going to sort of pigeon pair it with something that's more specifically high yield, more like a duplex, um, something like that's going to produce more more cash flow to offset that risk as well. So, and then the, the, there's another way to think about it as well. You, you mentioned LMI, LMI, LMI. A lot of people get hung up about LMI and they think, oh my God, it's this extra cost. Avoid the extra cost. And it's like, well, in a lot of cases, you can get the lender's mortgage insurance capitalized into the loan, right? And in which case, you've got the tenants paying for it. Now, a lot of this is a lot of this thinking, right, is contingent on a few things. Um, am I in an area where there's current and sustained future demand? Uh, have I got a, the type of property that's going to attract consistently good tenants so I have a low risk if tenants move out? All of these kind of things. But these... This forms part of the in the property selection strategy, not just the finance strategy. And those two things, if you look at them independently, don't like you've got it. You have to look at them together to actually go. Okay, well, what type of property do I need to be able to support that kind of uh, financing strategy? Does that kind of make sense? It does, but I have a counter thought, and I'd love to hear your uh, view. So I hear that, right? I hear that. I, I can understand that. But I, I look at this and I go, if you want to be in the Navy SEALs, right, the SEALs, you've got to get through Hell Week. Mm. So that in order to be in the new Navy SEALs, you've got to complete a certain level of competency and endurance and just yep. pure brutality to yep. be allowed to play that sport. Yep. And some people relish on it. My concern or thought is, well, what's the – how weak in the case of the Navy SEALs for property investors? Like where does it like you shouldn't play this game? Like you need to think of it a different way to work with what you've got or that's focus that, on- That's pretty elitist. You're basically saying if you can't save, if you can't save, then you shouldn't be in the game. And I, I, I think I, I agree yeah, with you. Yeah, but to the point of the Navy SEALs, right, if you can't get through Hell Week, I probably don't want you next to me if there's guns firing. No, totally, totally. So let's <laughs> use that example, right? So if you want to be a Navy SEAL and get through Hell Week, what are you probably going to need? Aside from mental toughness, which is a key characteristic for any property investor as well, you're going to need strength, muscles. You're going to need endurance, 
fitness, right? You're going to need those two things in in probably equal measure, okay? Spice in a little bit of insanity and uh, yeah, you get yourself exactly. a nice mix. <laughs> exactly. So let's think about that then. Okay, let's just say um, let's just say I'm I I've never done any kind of exercise, right? And I'm like, you know what? I want to be a Navy SEAL. Damn it. I'm going to need to build some big muscles and I'm going to need to learn how to run for a really long distance. Okay, you got these two ends of the two ends of the health spectrum. I love using this analogy when I think about things. So you got one growth or strength and one is is endurance. One's building muscles, one's like getting getting really fit. Now, if you try and um, bloat and cut at the same time, if you go, okay, I've got to lose weight and build muscle at the same time, you're going to have a very inefficient training methodology. Okay, you're going to be like your your the the net return of your effort is going to be lower because you're going to be trying to optimize for two things at the same time when you are in inherently in neither position. Yeah, but you okay. never have to deal with seeing a muffin top when you go into the bathroom, right? <laughs> yeah, but but it's but it's inefficient, right? If you said, okay. All right, I need to increase my my muscle mass by ten kilos. So I'm gonna go. I'm gonna bloat, right? I'm gonna eat. I'm gonna eat. Do heaps of weights, and I'm gonna eat loads of calories. I'm gonna build up my muscle, but that's gonna increase your fat, right? And then you go, okay, well, I build up all this muscle, but damn it, I can't run anywhere. So then you've got to go, and 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 you don't have any endurance, and you've got to shred the fat. So then you go, you cut, you start to reduce your calories, and you start to do more aerobic exercises. Okay, and then and then you don't just keep on this big seesaw where you go to extremes. And in every case, what you eventually want to do is you want to reduce that that frequency shift until you get to the middle, and you can say, okay, cool. Now that I have good muscle mass and I am fit, now I want to focus on balance. So therefore, my training re- regimen will con- constitute a uh, you know a mix of weights and cardio and all of this kind of stuff and I'll stay holistically fit. Now, if you do that, you're going to be in a better position to be able to survive Hell Week in the Navy SEALs. The question is, how do you get to that point? Okay, so on the one hand, you could say, well, tough, unless you can save all your money and unless you can go through it, then, you know, you can't, you shouldn't be in the game. But on the other hand, it's like- But even the banks have lending requirements. We have to, there has to be something more to that comment. Property investing can't be for everyone. I don't know. I don't, yeah, there are lending requirements, right? So you know, it can't be for it can't be for everyone because there are there are limitations on how to get in the game, right? But w- would you would you argue then that it's um, it is unethical or incorrect for parents to give their kids capital to start their property portfolio? So well, yeah, you didn't save for it. You don't deserve to be a property investor. Like I I, I find that. I'm of the view that I want to democratize property investing because I think that more people should be able to get in the game and do it well and, and we can create greater levels of freedom and prosperity across our whole country and it's going to have a huge societal impact. So really struggle with this idea that it's like, you know, unless you've done what I've done, then you shouldn't be there. I, I agree. There are I, I better there are better that, there are better ways to be there are healthier positions to be in, right? But that doesn't mean that you shouldn't use whatever opportunities you have to move you in that direction. You know, I, I think it's about understanding the different pathways you can use to get there. Right. Could property investing be for everyone? Yes. I think it should be open to everyone. The door should be there for everyone. I agree. But I completely look at it and go, for where you're at now, you may be significantly better off focusing on income, earning more. That might be like you're getting fit to go to the Navy SEALs Hell Week. And I think too many people are skipping that step. And I'm going to put it out there. I think that. Uh, There's a general mentality to silver bullets and a lack of delayed gratification in general, which would have people think that, well, if I can get the money, then I'm I'm suitable or that's the right move for me. And I I dislike that idea 
because if no one is necessarily teaching that or having that endeavour, it seems very dangerous and it seems like people could really get hurt in that in- incumbent. Yeah, I, I, I agree with the sentiment. I 100% agree with the sentiment, right? I think that there is a there is a propensity towards silver bullets and get-rich-quick ideas and there's this propensity towards buy properties, as many properties as you can, as fast as you can, use as much leverage as possible, etc. And that's what leads people to buy, you know, Un, you know, unsatisfactory assets. You know, I, I, I know that people will buy apartments and townhouses because they're cheap, right? Because they can every time they get ten or fifteen thousand dollars, they go buy another property and they you get it at ninety percent LVR and stuff like that. And it's like, what are you trying to build? Like, what is going on there? Like, what is the thing that what is the thing that you're trying to create? But there's a big difference, I think, between that and someone who's who who is saying, okay, how do I use my current resources to improve my life and how do I move to a better place sooner and what can I do now? Now, to say, yeah, they should be focused more on income, uh, agreed. But for some people, there are limitations around that as well. You know, Maybe there's less upward mobility in their job. Sure, they could have create a second job or start a, a side business and stuff, but that's not for everyone either. There might be some other limitations around that too. So I, I don't think it's carte blanche saying saying no. I just think it's I think it's about understanding understanding the risk and understanding the strategy. See, that's so fascinating. I do. I, I absolutely do. It's like I know I'm not going to get drafted to the NBA right now. There's clearly, I don't know, about a foot of height limitation in my genetics that would say, maybe not great move. I'm probably not as quick either. Mm. I'm n- never going to run the hundred meters at the Olympics. So I look at that and go, okay, well, this is the hand you dealt. And go, okay, well, let's do the best with where you're at. Like, it would be a terrible idea for me to do Hell Week to play in the NBA or run the 100 meters. Like, I'm not in form and there's very little I can do genetically to train. I may be Hell Week, but even then I would say I'm, you know, past my prime. But I look at that and go, like, there clearly is, like, I don't, I don't want it to sound elitist or anything like that, but there's certain things where parameters apply and I won't lie. So what, so what are some, like, how, how would you put those parameters in place then? I'm trying to understand because I'm, I'm looking at it from the perspective that, you know, we might have a client come on board who's, you know, 25 to 30 years old, has been saving for the last few years, has gotten $50,000 together, wants to use that $50,000 to start getting into the game, wants to buy a property and they're going, look, you know, it's my first property. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get a 90% LVR loan. Uh, or you know maybe it's their second property or whatever, right? But they're at that position there, and they're continuing to save, and they're continuing to move ahead, and they're just using the instruments at their disposal to get themselves ahead. Now, it's not to say that it's a second tier lender. You know, there's like first tier lenders that are doing this kind of stuff as well. So, is the problem that you're saying you haven't saved enough? You shouldn't use ninety percent. Okay, so or- you've set a parameter there. This is what I want. I I want to be. I want the definition. I'm not claiming I have the under- understanding right. But again, there's requirements. So in that there, you said. $50,000, right, and twenty five. What if they're 45 and it's $20,000? Does that change it? Should they buy? And then no. like, wh- where's that bound where it's like, this okay, is, this is – because this is, I don't feel like anyone's setting this. I feel like no, Okay, this is a very different discussion though. Like, no, this is a very dis- different discussion. On the one hand, you're saying people shouldn't use 90% LMI because it's just dumb and they, don't, they shouldn't get into the game. I don't fundamentally agree with that statement. Right? Neither I do I. But okay. I think if you have to get LMI, I think there should be something here going, I really want to make sure this is appropriate. I agree. Yeah, I know. I, I 100% agree, right? So I, under, I, I don't think it's a carte blanche of like, oh, yeah, as soon as you've got a dollar, try and get 10 times leverage on it. Boom. 
Uh, I don't think that should be a mentality. And so what you then uh, implied was like, if someone's got, only got 20 grand, should they invest in property? Probably not, right? What if they've only got $100 a week spare cash flow? You know, like where are these bounds where it's appropriate in their um, game? And it's like LMI might be a trigger, it may not. But it's like, yeah. where is it appropriate where property is something think, for you or think, not for yeah, you? I don't, I don't think LMI is the trigger, right? So I I kind of cooked it down and said uh, and kind of worked it out after a while because we had people coming to us early on when we started the business that had very low amounts of cash. Now, aside from the fact that, you know, we, we charge service fees and stuff like that, I was like, well, what is the efficiency use of capital? Like, where is the line? Right, like, where, where is the line where this makes line. sense? Hmm? That's what I want. I want the line. $50,000 is where I've worked out the line is. Below that, and look, to be, to be honest, we have helped people in recent time, say in the last 12 months, that have had less than $50,000. But that's been, that's been a pretty interesting use cases where you know young couples trying to get ahead, all of that kind of stuff. And they're just like, look, we really need help, blah, blah, blah. We've kind of made something work for them because we actually want to bring value and help them. But by and large, I usually say $50,000 is the minimum. You've got to get to that point. The reason you've got to get to that point is um, not out of some, oh, look, you've proven yourself and some idealistic, yeah, you, you know, you now deserve the right to be a property investor. It's from an efficiency use of capital and a risk management perspective. Because for I know for a fact that we could go by, a, you know, I remember years ago, in fact, um, when I didn't have much money and I was looking at this, um, this I think it was a one-bedroom flat in Maui. And I could buy I could buy the whole the whole thing. I think it was only going to cost thirty thousand or fifty thousand uh, dollars. I think let's just say it was fifty thousand dollars. And I was like, oh my god, I can get a ninety percent loan on that, and I could spend five thousand dollars, and I could buy this. I could buy this property. <laughs> and there's madness, right? Like there's that you've got to think about the efficiency use of capital and strategy more than anything else. Strategy plays such a big role in it because it's not just how many properties can you buy. And I kind of use like to you know again I get to talk about this stuff all the time. You know, should you buy a one million dollar property, or should because it's worth it's worth more, and therefore when it goes up in value, you get a, a higher net amount on that single amount of growth, or do you buy ten one hundred thousand dollar properties? Well, probably neither. Okay, it's going to be somewhere in the middle. Now, depending on where people are at in their journey, maybe a two hundred fifty thousand dollar property is totally cool, and for where other people are in their journey, maybe a seven hundred thousand dollar property is cool, right? But you you don't want to live in the edges and the extremes in anything. Okay, I don't think right. So. So do I think that there's a there's a base amount of capital that you need to get to to be able to effectively execute? Yes. Do I think that there is a uh, problem with uh, using 90% or 10 times leverage and paying LMI? No, I don't. Do I think that it's a long-term strategy? No, I don't. Do I think you need uh, to have uh, a, a certain amount of uh, f- uh, financial acuity, uh, emotional fortitude, intellectual fortitude to be able to uh, be an effective investor? Yes, I do. And I think that that's a big discussion in and of itself. All right. So let's pretend in this idea, is 50 grand how weak in this endeavor? Is that the idea of you want to be in it? Is that how we're framing? And then two more, two more, don't, you're not getting away this easy. Um, if someone's 25, right, I can accept, you know, they've got a lot more time than someone who's 45. So maybe does age play a role here as well? Is like how weak, if you're 45, maybe it needs to be 150 grand. No, it does, it does, it does, it does, it does. Like all two, of this, a couple more, it, don't get away. Single okay. or couples? Because I go, if someone's single, one income versus two, income diversification, and then if you're going to have kids or no kids. Like how do you shape up this hell week endeavour? Yeah, well, this, is, this is why there's no one size fits all. Like, this, is why, this is why blanket statements like 
like I'm not that you're saying I don't know you've actually made this statement, but making a blank blank blanket statement like people shouldn't use LMI because it means that they're not financially you know reliable enough or whatever. I, I think that's a, that's 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 nonsense, right? But yeah, there I, are I, I do. I'm going to say right now. I feel like LMI. If you're using LMI, that should be like smoke. It should be like, okay, there might be a fire here. There could be something that needs it. Or it could just be that someone's out the back having a barbecue and everything's fine. Okay? LMI is to me a signal that there could be something wrong. There might not be. Yeah, you need to assess the risk. You should investigate. <laughs> you need to assess the risk. And this right. might do well in social media, Goose. This might light a fire. Maybe we should just go out there and go, <laughs> do you know what? LMI is for plebs. I, okay, okay. So there are, there are, no, there are, there are different, like you've got to look at every situation differently because no, no two people are the same, no two situations are the same, no two, nothing, right? So, no two, you know, people have, people are on different incomes and all of that kind of stuff. Now, the 25-year-old that is saving $1,000 a month and has been saving for the last whatever 50,000 divided by 12 is in numbers of years, uh, you know, their opportunity to use that $50,000 to accelerate their capital whilst they continue to save $12,000 $12, a year is going to be extremely important in setting up their wealth journey. That's massive, right? It's going to help them get ahead. Um, but then you can go, well, what if that 25-year-old got gifted $50,000 from their parents and never saved that up? Would that still would they still would it still make sense? Well, then you've got to think about okay, well, what's the level of maturity? What's their level of you know? Uh, are they spending all of their money? Are they saving any money? Are they doing any of that kind of stuff? What 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 is what is that position? Now that comes into a finance assessment. It's what mortgage brokers do and banks do. They go, okay, you may have fifty grand, but maybe we don't want to lend you any money. That's why lending policies exist to be able to assess that risk. So your opinion that LMI should be smoke. Hey, I agree that it should be and uh, you should address the risk. Right, but it shouldn't be a no. Like it should be. Uh, it's a tool to be used, just like anything else. Now, you know, if you're an, if you're an at risk, you know, banks think we're at risk right now. You know, look, I, I, we, our income is good, savings are good, uh, business is going good, right? But based on our last two business financials, we're we're still we're still at risk. Banks are saying no. We need to get we need to get more documentation, right? So there's a degree there where it's like, okay, well, we, the banks are doing all of this kind of uh, head checking themselves, so I think that that is kind of being managed to a certain sense. Now you go to the other end of the spectrum. Let's say you're 60 years old and you've only got twenty thousand um, dollars. Probably don't spend it in property, and the reason reason for that is lending is going to be harder. You're not going to get which one out of it. You're not going to have enough maturity in your portfolio. The strategy is not going to make sense. Like buying a property is not the goal. Buying a property is not the goal. The goal is. What can I do to use the resources at my disposal? Time, money, energy, all of these other things. LMI is a resource. Debt is a resource. How do I use the resources at my disposal to move me from where I am to want to where I want to be in a time in a, in a reasonable time scale that is going to have a managed risk profile? Very good answer, Bruce. And yes, intentionally pro provocative and controversial. <laughs> I've got to keep the listeners amused, right? We don't want to cover this in a boring <laughs> totally, way. Totally. Just for anyone out there, I'm running a Hell Week boot camps if you want to get financially fit. No, I'm joking. <laughs> <laughs> keep me interested. But Goose, you have answered all my questions today. Any final thoughts or comments for this episode? Otherwise, we will wrap this one up. No, I, I, I don't. But I just think on that point, like, I, I think it's a very fascinating point, right? Around the, just around that kind of 90, should, should we go 90% or not? And I, I, I think that, you might, my position really is if you're going to go and do it alone, 
it's, you're, you need to manage your risk a lot more. If you're just going to go buy a house, I, I don't think, and, and you're going to do it all on your own, I don't think that that's managed risk. I think that that's hubris. You know, if you're saying I'm going to leverage as much as I can, I'm going to do it all by myself. I'm not going to get any help. Uh, I'm going to. You're just. It's wild. I think that's wildly risky. But I think if you can surround yourself with the right team, right, and if you can look at the right information, and if you can get the right support, like. I don't think there's anything wrong with taking risks. We take risks in business all the time. We take risks in life all the time. You know, there's a you have to take risks, but it's about how you manage that and looking at what management uh, protocols you need to put in place. Whether that's a team of advisors, whether that's you know running the numbers in a different way, getting somebody else to pressure test your work and do all that kind of stuff. I do that. I, I do that. I have. Basically, Terry Ryder is kind of like a, a, a we call him a board member for us because we meet with him regularly. To, to pressure test our ideas, to go, hey, this is where we're looking. This is why we're there. What's wrong with our thinking? Because we look to manage risk because we're trying to manage risk for other people, right? And so some people would say that what we do as a business, you know, targeting emerging markets, staying on the front edge of demand, all that kind of stuff, they would say that that's risky because it's way less risky to just go and buy in Sydney. Uh, but I think it's about managing that risk and looking at what protocols you've got to put in place. And I think the more that people can understand risk and rather than thinking about it as some amorphous, scary thing that they need to avoid, uh, I think actually the, the faster they're going to accelerate. Agreed. Hugely agree. Awesome. On that note, no, I'm good. Thanks. <laughs> Excellent. We're going to wrap that one up. I've kind of taken the lead today, but that was a lot it's of fun. Good. Thank you for answering my questions, Goose. These are the things I struggle to get straight lines on on Facebook groups without it turning into heated biases. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's been a pleasure, Charlie. I've enjoyed, uh, I've enjoyed the dialogue. I've enjoyed the, uh, the uh, antagonism and everywhere we went with this episode. So thanks, man. Look forward to chatting to you again.